Hey guys, I'm Abe, and uh, welcome to the second episode of our podcast. Well, more like first, but yeah. Oh, well, we have the intro. I guess this is the first. So, last week, we went to Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire, and we were able to check out uh, the Strawberry Bank Museum, which is an outdoor um, museum, well, of a... uh, historical neighborhood that's been around since the early 1600s and we get to see sort of the architecture because many of the houses have stayed as they are and restoration on them has been pretty minimal and yeah there's a bunch of great stuff for us to check out there yeah it's really easy to observe you know development there given they've preserved all these different things um they've also got signs outside most of the houses and most of preserved items that tell a story on why they're there um for example there was the the first time you walk into strawberry bank there's a sign acknowledging that this land did not originally belong to the settlers and that the abenaki tribe was there long before them um and it acknowledges their basically ownership of the land still which we thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really good for them that they did that because they're not trying to, like, cover up the fact. Like, I feel like some other museums, it's not as if they're covering up, but more just, like, kind of glazing over, like, not going to mention it. But yeah, Strawberry Banks does a really good job with that. And the Abenaki themselves are very interesting. Um So they're native to pretty much the surrounding area. So North America, Canada, maybe Northeast United States and Northeast Canada. Um, So they've been there for, like Evan said, an extraordinarily long amount of time. I don't have the exact metric here, but um, they were just hunter-gatherers with... uh, they used Portsmouth, most likely, for uh, the fish as a food source. Yeah, um, one one way it was described on one of the signs there was that there we all have vacation homes now, or most of us do in, you know, coastal areas, lakes, seas, stuff like that. Portsmouth was pretty much a vacation home to them. Um, they would set up temporary residences when they would come to Portsmouth. Given their hunter-gatherers, they would travel um, from their main area of residence, and they would they would get to Portsmouth and set up what is what what is called wigwams. Um, and the wigwams would last for two to five days, depending on how well they were made. And um, the, essentially, the point of them was tents. It it's the modern like think of it as our modern version of tents yeah um essentially it's a bunch of sticks in a dome shape yeah and that is that is the wigwam i actually got to stand inside of one it was i don't want to say it was like an outstanding experience because that would just be like such hyperbole but wigwams are pretty cool (laughs) yeah and i along with their hunting gathering skills um like in Portsmouth with fishing, they also were fairly skilled at pottery. There, um, there were, you, you know, 
things left over from their time there and they the strawberry bank people were able to preserve them and we were able to see some of those which was pretty cool um and they also shared those skills along with their farm skills of farming with the settlers who uh, also stole their land but yeah so let's get to that land stealing actually so in 1630 uh strawberry bank is created and it is named for these strawberries duh, um, that were along the Piscataqua River at the time. And Strawberry Bank was a full-fledged residential neighborhood until 1950. And then in 1965, it was turned into the museum that we now have it as today. And there is really a lot that we were able to observe but for one of the main events that we were able to see was that uh, actually there are people living there in the houses now which was really cool for us to observe that the I mean the house restoration is essentially they replace the parts that are falling apart but still try to maintain the original form um maybe even color if they can um yeah so the (laughs) fact that there's people living in like 300 year old houses is really cool yeah and on top of that there's i mean the modern the more modern houses that are from you know 1950 1965 those are the ones that most people still live in and they are still being developed technically there was a house there when we got there that's right at the front of the bank and it was it had a sign in front of it saying this is being renovated it's being fixed so that people can live in it so they're doing basically the bare minimum to make them livable um and during what they call open season the strawberry bank they also have these people basically role play what life would be like back in you know colonial colonial times and it, it, like a hundred years ago which is pretty interesting. Yeah, they also have a food truck, which kind of broke immersion for me, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like they might not have had a food truck in 1630, but that's beside the point. Um, some of, one of the most interesting things um, that I didn't know uh, about Strawberry Bank was it's more contemporary history. So it's history in like the 1900s. Uh, so actually, uh, the there's a fair bit of connection between Strawberry Bank and the Jewish community in Portsmouth, which I didn't even know was a big thing, to be honest, even which I guess makes me a failure as a Jew. But regardless, we um we passed by Temple uh, Israel on the way to uh, the Prescott Park. And that was super interesting to see such a large synagogue yeah, in, the ones we have here in Concord, I've been to Abe's temple here in Concord, and it was, it's fairly small, and I don't know if there are any others, and this one was larger than the actual chapels that they had in Portsmouth, which I, it's, it's sort of irregular to see, I feel like. Yeah, no, it is, and I don't really, so in the Jewish community in Concord, you often have interactions with the communities in Manchester uh, through like youth group connect programs, but we never really interact with Portsmouth. So 
I didn't, I just assumed that either they didn't have a synagogue at all or they, their community was very small, but it was super interesting to see that they actually do have a thriving and large Jewish community there and that some residents of Strawberry Bank, uh, which is the historical piece of this, actually built what's called a mikveh or a ritual bath. Uh, for Jews, and essentially it is like a baptism place, I guess that's the best way I could put it. Um, I went when I was 12 or 13, and it's essentially how you officially convert to Judaism in the eyes of, I don't want to say like the world Jewish government, (laughs) but like kind of. Um, so if your mom isn't Jewish, then you are not officially Jewish. But if you say a couple prayers in a mikvah or this really cool bath that is exclusively rainwater, it has to be exclusively rainwater, um, then you are officially Jewish. And it looks like, or there was one of these ritual baths at Strawberry Bank in the 20th century, which was super cool to see and they had some yeah it wasn't exact it wasn't right there but they had some pictures of it and it looked i mean there they had everything that a mikvah needs i mean there was the bath and there was the spring water collection and rainwater collection and it was really cool to know that the jewish community is uh, made an impact on this historical place yeah and yeah i mean i guess it, it was it was cool to learn about sort of the Jewish community being so involved because yeah. I got the feeling from this, this is another case of there being a um, sort of sign in front of a historical site like the mikveh. And it was interesting to see that this community, the Jewish community back then would all come together for every mikveh that happened in strawberry, uh, strawberry bank. And that was, I don't know. It, it seems to me that it, you don't hear about that all that much, but it seemed to be very prevalent back then. Yeah, and another, I think, I think very interesting 20th century occurrence was uh, the presence of Victory Gardens, because if you remember from the dates, uh, during the Second World War, Strawberry Bank was just a normal residential neighborhood that just happened to be there for 300 years longer than a lot of other neighborhoods had. So they, just like everyone else, uh, they had their victory gardens where they would grow their own vegetables so that they wouldn't have to go out and buy their own because the troops needed those. So it was, that's interesting to see sort of everyone in Strawberry Bank, you know, exercising the spirit of patriotism, so to speak. Yeah, and I mean... Along with those victory gardens, it wasn't just, it, it, they weren't quite normal compared to other places. Um, Portsmouth actually had a ton of diversity from around the world, um, especially in like their herbs and gardens. Um, it, was, it was pretty interesting to see. We walked into one of these victory gardens and there were herbs from, you know, pretty much every single country. Um, it, it, I mean, some of the herbs and ways of farming them were not, it, were not found in the best way, given the, um, 
basically when they brought slaves with them in their settlement, they also used the slaves' knowledge of farming back in their land to create herbs of that kind in North America. Yeah, so this little herb garden they had, so they had uh, the herbs of Africa. So they essentially, like Evan said, um, used their slaves' knowledge of African herbs to cultivate them here. And a lot, as well as that, uh, a lot of African herbs and spices came to America, not just through the triangle trade, just through normal trade as it is, as the area was beginning to be colonized and you get all of these great little sections and info blurbs on herbs. So you have Eastern European herbs like, uh, I don't know, garlic. Um, you have some Mediterranean herbs, um, more Mediterranean, Western European, which is essentially the Western European herbs are just often what we would consider to be quote unquote, like what we put in American food. Yeah. So Western, I don't know if Italy counts as Western Europe. Half and I'm, of those are I'm sure it's not um, wrong to speculate that a lot of the herbs they grew was from, na- from Native Americans helping yeah. them when they first settled there as well. Well, yeah, as we know with um, the story of Squancho uh, from, Plymouth, or what's now Plymouth, uh, the Native Americans very much helped the colonists cultivate their soil. So it would not be incorrect to say that none of these would have been able to be planted without Native American help. Um, what else? Oh, yes. Uh, the fires. So Were there two? There were three or four. Uh, so a massive problem for Portsmouth in specifically the first two decades of the 19th century was large, large, large fires. And there were about three or four of them. Uh, I believe there was one in 1802, one in 1813 and I believe that is it so I think one thing that that really says about the development itself is one that actually pushed the development it allowed for the Portsmouth homeowners to modernize their architecture so we see a lot more brick buildings in Portsmouth now because uh, the wooden buildings caught fire three or four times and one of the large consequences of the current architecture or the architecture before the fire was uh, their shingle roofs. And the shingle roofs caught fire extremely easily. So now you see a lot less shingle roofing. You see more slate and thus. So the fires were a super in- integral part of uh, pushing Portsmouth uh, into the industrial era of building. Yeah, and I hadn't really thought about this until now, but the fires and the dates um, of them sort of correspond with the first creation of the aqueduct system in Portsmouth. I don't know if that's actually connected or not, um, because Abe was saying that it, you know, pushed 
into the industrialization of Portsmouth. But um, it's interesting because in 1800, it's the first recorded aqueduct system being put in. And then, you know, in the 10, 15 years after that aqueduct system was established, those are when the fires happened. Um, and, you know, so on, the aqueducts were developed. Um, and it was sort of interesting to Abe and I how they were made. We hadn't known this until then, but there were uh, logs like of timber made that were hollowed out to pretty much make wooden pipes that the water would go through, yeah. which, I mean, doesn't seem a permanent solution to the aqueduct issue because of rot and things like that, but yeah. it was interesting to see the sort of development of the aqueducts to a more industrial area. Yeah, what, one thing that is super interesting when people mention, just complete side tangent, when people mention the ingenuity of the Romans we were using less developed aqueducts 3,000 years after they were. Yeah. Which is just random side note, had to say it. Uh, <laughs> but the wooden pipes were super cool. Like Evan said, I had absolutely no knowledge that that was even a thing until we got there, which was a super interesting takeaway because I figured that was probably, if they used it in Portsmouth, they probably used it in other places. Uh, but... Yeah, I don't think there was too much permanence to that because wood and water do not go amazingly well, especially since the log is hollowed out, so there is less wood for it to... Rot through. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know how long they really expected the wooden pipes to last, but regardless, uh, I think now we can get to the shipyard. Or, yeah, the port yeah. of Portsmouth. Yeah, <laughs> so the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard was constructed in the 1800s to help prevent uh, privateer attacks from the French and just expand the U.S. Navy overall. And it has essentially become the pinnacle of development for Portsmouth because the rest of, because a good bit of Portsmouth has developed around it and people come to Portsmouth for the jobs um, contractors, the like. So the large, large, large presence of the shipyard is most of the reason why I would say Portsmouth is on the map. I think it has done a tremendous amount for Portsmouth in terms of publicity. Yeah, trade, publicity, you know. Money. It brings in a lot of money to Portsmouth and is... So when you when you go to Portsmouth... I would say it is a well-kept place. Very. I would say it is very clean. Um, the upkeep there, the public upkeep is great. I would say that is mostly due to the fact that the shipyard brings in so much, as much money as it does. Yeah, and I mean, also, to get into Portsmouth, you drive through these residential neighborhoods um, that are, you know, right around Strawberry Bank, and... Seeing, I mean, Strawberry Bank is well kept itself, but these neighborhoods are very, very, um, it, I, I don't know, they just look cleanly. Yeah, they look extremely clean and well kept, and I guess just the whole vibe of a clean town is sort of given off by the shipyard. Yeah, because it's one of the most touristy towns in New Hampshire. Yeah, no, it's a big tourist attraction on the sea. It's one of, I would say, it and Hampton. 
yeah. are our two yeah. our two biggest places for tourists that isn't like a ski mountain or something right, like right. that. But it gets a good amount of tourism and it gets a good amount of business from the harbor. So originally, as I said, the harbor was designed to expand the military and uh, prevent French privateer attacks from along the East Coast because that was starting to become a problem. Um, now, it has since changed its mission statement to uh, expanding and modernizing the United States nuclear attack submarine fleet, <laughs> which is really cool. Yeah. Um, that's, it sounds awesome. So essentially what they do now is repair and build nuclear attack submarines. Yeah, which is interesting. But It's awesome. Um, and another, just like going back to the date of which it was established, it was established between 1800 and 1815, um, which, I mean, seeing that it's established around the same time as, you know, the aqueducts, houses are being, you know, altered, developed, I think it's definitely showing that through these periods of development to get to where we are currently in Portsmouth, that the early 1800s was like a very large, a very big deal for that. Um, yeah, and it was kind of all uphill from there. Yeah. So I think we can definitely tie the massive growth of the Portsmouth in general to the creation of the shipyard in, let's say, just 1800 or something like that. So yeah. if that happens, then people build more houses oh no, the houses catch fire, still build more houses, the houses catch fire four more times, and... <laughs> figure out a solution. Yeah, figure out a solution eventually. Uh, there's a lot more people, so you need to transport water so that they can have some resemblance of running water and maybe plumbing, so you get the wooden pipes, and, you know, there you go. It all adds up. Yep. And, I mean, to to say that a lot of the development was definitely due to, you know, the shipyard, a lot of effort of the Portsmouth community. But I think stemming back from before the shipyard to the initial settlement, it, it would be very wrong to not talk about slavery in yeah. Portsmouth. Because, I mean, it's not as talked about in you know, northern states, especially New Hampshire and a lot of those. Yeah, we like but, to think that we didn't do it. But we did, and it contributed to a very large part of the Portsmouth development. Yeah, Portsmouth, I think, was... I, yeah, I think it's a fair statement to say that Portsmouth was built off the back of slave labor as much of colonial America was. It's no yeah. exception, and... Abe and I um, finished at Strawberry Bank a little bit early, and we were able to go tour... Well, not, not tour. There was a self-guided tour of the Black Heritage Trail in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And they really try to show wherever you go that this is built upon slave labor. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're proud of it. It's that they are showing this is this was done for them yeah. by people they enslaved and took from their homes. Um, and I don't know. It It's interesting to see them recognizing that along yeah. with the... Native Americans and things like that. Yeah, like like we said earlier, Strawberry Bank just does a great job of, and Portsmouth in general, does a great job of being conscious of other groups that the development of Portsmouth might have affected and Strawberry Bank and the like. 
So slaves were in Portsmouth pretty much from the time of its creation, uh, like most other colonies. And so they, because they've been there for so long, they're deeply entwined with its history. Yeah. Seeing as they built most of it, or what the original Portsmouth. Yeah, I mean they, they did build most of it, and yeah. they also did most of, like, a lot of the farming of herbs and such. Like the Victory Gardens are an exception. That mm-hmm. was mostly women, um, who were taking part in, uh, these Victory Gardens to support, the their families when their husbands were off at war, but, for any other garden in this area, pretty much, you could attribute the growing of flowers, herbs, uh, like, any kind of vegetable, fruit, to slave labor, most likely. Um, It really wasn't... The idea that we got from a lot of the Black Heritage Trail was that it was not as expensive. It wasn't expensive, obviously, given it was slave labor, and... Um, just about everyone initially who lived there had slaves doing, uh, you know, house chores, garden chores, anything they didn't want to do pretty much. Yeah. So I actually just found this out. Um, Portsmouth Naval Shipyard is one of four shipyards in the Navy still. There's only four now. In, in all of... In all of the United States. That's interesting. There are only four remaining shipyards in the Navy. So, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't... Oh, also, another cool fact. So, the Russo-Japanese War actually ended in the main part of the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. So, President Teddy Roosevelt uh, got the Japanese and the Russians to sign a peace deal in Portsmouth. Which is a very, very fun fact. I didn't know all that. Yeah, no. I, I mean, also, you kind of see this with New Hampshire. Um, like the Bretton Woods Treaty and which the Bretton Woods Accords. So those important climate accords that were signed a couple decades ago yeah. also took place in New Hampshire. So we've got a lot here. Yeah. I mean, another sort of interesting thing that Abe and I wanted to go to, but apparently you have to like reserve in advance and it's pretty expensive is that you can tour like the first um n- is it nuclear torpedo submarine nuclear attack so uh the albatross uh is the first nuclear submarine uh built at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard and you can go inside of it it is now a museum and i think my brother did it when he was in cub scouts yeah and it looks extremely cool and you can it's great how you can kind of just go inside this nuclear attack submarine and kind of see the inner machinations and how it works. Yeah, but for lack of time and yeah. funds, <laughs> yeah. we couldn't. Yeah, so I think we are at the end of our little first episode here. We'd like to thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.